Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with J.F. Martel, writer of Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice and co-host of the podcast Weird Studies. Enjoy. Actually, I do find it remarkable right now. It's somewhat related to you that there's this damn wildfire smoke in oh, New yeah. Jersey. And it's so uh, insane. I've never seen anything like it. Even living in California, I've never seen this. I, yeah, I woke up yesterday. I mean, I'm pretty close to it. Uh, it was, it was, it was real intense haze yesterday. It was beautiful in the morning the the sun took on a hue of orange i'd never seen before you know like just it was beautiful and and yet and yet uh just smelt like a campfire everywhere i don't know if it's exactly yeah exactly and i could actually at the end of the day i can actually taste the ashes in my mouth it was it's pretty gross but you know is this common no this i don't remember this ever happened maybe i have vague memories of this happening when i was a kid around here but when I, I i'm in ottawa canada and uh which is between montreal and toronto and when i was uh, a a kid there were paper mills on the river here right across from the parliament buildings so um parliament buildings being the kind of canadian white house i guess uh okay uh, right across the river there were these big paper mills so the whole town was kind of like smoky at that time but those mills closed down a long time ago but I, so I don't know if I'm just remembering that haze or if I remember this type of thing happening at some point, but yeah, no, this was unprecedented. I've read that the wildfires in Canada this summer are just nuts, just completely out of control. So it's a lot more than what we usually get. Yeah. Yeah. It is almost post-apocalyptic vibes. I thought yeah. I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. Suddenly the sky was, the, the, the sun was like this beautiful orange. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you could look at it. You could look directly at it. And then yeah. everything was just grayed out. Yeah. Very odd. Some strange type of Canadian warfare. Yeah, this right. is your only way. So chemical <laughs> warfare. It's the, it's all so bleak. Yeah. yeah, it's very polite. Um <laughs> all right. So your name is Is it Jean Francois? Jean Francois, yeah. Martel. And that's Martel. because you're from, okay. <laughs> that's because you're from where? I'm a French Canadian. So I was, uh, I actually grew up in Ontario, which has a sizable French Canadian community. But of course the, I'm, that was part of the Quebec diaspora. So I'm a Quebecois French Canadian, ethnically speaking. <laughs> My family uh came to canada in the early 1600s so we've been here wow. for a long time yeah what does it mean to be i know what it means to be french and and then i think i know what it means to be canadian but what does it mean to be french canadian it's yeah well that's that's why i kind of mentioned that the years because um it, French Canadians were here a long time ago. You know, it's uh, it's 
still essentially kind of a medieval scene when uh, when my ancestors left Europe and came here and and um, so French Canada has developed a kind of uh, its own kind of distinct cultural identity, you'd say, I guess these days, um, uh, its own culture. Um, and so in the mind of a French Canadian or in the mind of a French person from France, there's a serious kind of distinction to be made between a French Canadian and a French person from France. So uh, that's why if I said I'm French, it would feel weird because yeah. that to me is, yeah. So it's, it's a little bit like, um, like being American as opposed to British. Same. Oh, okay. Type, yeah. Um, and so the French Canadians were here when this area was called New France, uh, the first kind of big colonial epoch in Canadian history. And then eventually the British um, took over New France after the Seven Year War. And then uh, then we had the really kind of unprecedented situation of having like a huge French population ruled by an English monarch, which was totally new. Mm -hmm. um, and so Canada, as we know it, is kind of the result of a negotiation between these two groups that in Europe would never, didn't negotiate much. <laughs> um, so it's, it's funny. Kind of, kind of a, <laughs> it's funny to think of Canada as just a result of a negotiation, but that sounds well, that's like typically a, Canadian. Yeah. 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 Apt description. I was just there like two weeks ago. Um, oh, where were you? Uh, near Whitby. Whitby, Ontario, yeah. So yeah, near, yeah, near Toronto. Yeah. To see my ancestors, see my relatives, it was beautiful. It, I realized in some ways I'm just in America. It wasn't dramatically different. It's kind of why I ask. It's a strange identity, Canadian. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, and Southern Ontario is feels very much like um, the American East Coast kind of thing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I don't know if you've been to Montreal or Quebec, but there's a definitely a difference yeah, there. I have. Do you have any relationship to your ancestors? Do you have like ancestral? Uh, do you feel any connection to that idea? Yes, I do actually. Um, in a, like a very literal sense, in a kind of like yeah. magical sense. Um, do I have any practices? I wish I did. I I have. There are a few relatives that I that I include in my practice. I'm a Catholic, so. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I feel like I've got a few ancestors who are kind of backing me up a little bit and I'll refer, I'll, I'll speak to once in a while. Um, but I don't have any real kind of organized practice of connecting. I think this is something that has largely been lost in, in the West and well, at least in our parts of the West. And I find that, um, regrettable i wish i did but uh certainly family history is very interest interesting to me um my mom's family is was very engaged politically it's a family of journalists essentially um and so there's a lot of history there and they played a big part in um you know fighting for francophone rights in ontario where francophones are a minority um, so that's kind of a part of me, I guess. And uh, my dad's side uh, is essentially kind of a working class family. Um, 
But what they had, my grandmother and my mother's on my father's side was truly a mystical person. Like someone today we'd call like a psychic. Um, she had prophetic dreams, all sorts of weird demonic experiences. Like she met all kinds of entities and, uh, that certainly played a role in shaping me for sure. You know, hearing those stories. Um, well, you, how, how long did you know her? I knew her till I was um, probably nine or 10 when she passed away. Was she also Catholic? Yes, but she, she, uh, my grandfather what was essentially an atheist. He is to this day. I remember last I checked, he's, he's 96 now, I think. Um, so she didn't attend church, she didn't practice, but she was certainly, I think if I had to try to like peg what she was, I think she was more like a, a spiritualist, really. Um, I, I've heard stories about her and her sisters performing seances and that sort of thing. So I think that without being part of the spiritualist movement, they were kind of, that's, that was there. They were just a broader kind of, um, non-denominational spiritual not religious kind of thing thing going um i only ask because there's yeah. like a weird that's a weird union catholicism and like magic-y you find <laughs> yeah not where i come from <laughs> no i mean yeah well i don't know it, it depends what you think of like petitions to saints and that sort of thing a lot of that stuff is pretty much magic um, right and some of the saints themselves seem like yeah like, uh, more of that ilk magicians yeah. it depends on it's so regional catholicism and in french canada catholicism was practiced very very devoutly until the quiet what what's called the quiet revolution in the 1960s when uh there was a big kind of um revolt against not just the catholic church in quebec but also against the government which was essentially operating like a kind of small tin pot dictatorship at the time um, so the, the quiet revolution was the awakening of Quebec and the secularization of Quebec. Uh, before mm. that, religion was just woven into every, every aspect of life. And, um, and that was a good thing, but it caused new problems, of course. And, uh, but the point is that what the type of Catholicism that was practiced even around me, because I didn't grow up in Quebec. So I grew up in an area in Ontario where most francophones were still practicing catholics when i was a kid and so a lot of that um those old folk traditions were still around and a lot of them really do feel like folk magic in fact they are i think it'd be weird to anyone only a catholic would think that those things weren't folk magic <laughs> right right uh, you know one of the things was getting water on easter morning you know you go to a spring in the woods before like at dawn on easter and the water that you draw from the spring is like essentially like automatic holy water <clears throat> that can cure anything and this was it's called eau de park is what we called it and uh so it means easter water there's a name hmm. for this I, th I think it's this is done in, in ireland as well but i can't remember what they call it there so like that's essentially a kind of magical practice um there are shrines and homes i remember when i was a kid where people would uh do their rosaries and their prayers and those shrines looked a lot like what you'd see in the home of an occultist today you know uh, yeah yeah i mean i mostly add, i'm trying to lay out like the roots of your identity because i'm not even sure like when you said when you go to bed at the end of the day mm -hmm. what's your primary identity 
what do you think of yourself as? Are you a filmmaker? Oh, right. Are you a writer? Do you not concern yourself with these categorical things? I, I concern myself with them less now than I used to. This used to sure. be a big a, sure. so, a source of anxiety for me because I've always been uh, kind of, um, I had, I've always had my hands and what's the expression, my fingers in a lot of pies, so to speak, or yeah, yeah, spread myself like thin or something. Yeah, yeah. The point is I always did a lot of different things. Um, and, um, there was never really, I mean, for a while I was a filmmaker. I mean, I, that's how I was a television documentary director. So I was essentially making, but I wasn't my, it wasn't my intention to make television documentaries. My intention had been to be like a filmmaker, a feature filmmaker, but the Canadian film industry is, that's a whole world. And we can get into that if you want, but um, probably best. Is that, is that something, is that something that was uh, root? Like as a, as a young child, was there the seed of filmmaking or. Yeah. Well, I wasn't one of those kids who like, cause I was that, I was in that generation. Maybe I'm younger than like Tarantino and PT Anderson, but you know, the kind of like camcorder kids like JJ Abrams is my generation. Mm -hmm. And you know, I never, I had, I got a camcorder because I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was 12, my mom got me a video camera, but I never used it. Um, I think I was always a writer. And I think that that's my identity at the end of the day is that I'm a, I'm a writer. Um, but, uh, and, and I think that film was just an extension for me of writing. I found this out while I was doing it, that this is where I found the joy. And that's where I was, it's in the dreaming, right? It, to, I'm a dreamer. That's my identity. In fact, really? the writing is only like, <laughs> even the writing is just an extension of the dreaming. What I want to do is just sit in a room and dream. Like that's literally my if I want to make money in life, it's only so that I can afford some time to go sit somewhere and, and go into, yeah. And just. All right. So let's get into that. Yeah. yeah. Let's what's so valuable about dreaming in this. Obviously we're not talking about falling asleep and dreaming. No. You're talking about, you're talking about like reverie, reverie, yeah. divergence, divergent thinking, just like exploring kind of. Yeah. Like exploring. Yeah, exactly. Do you value there's this great kind of convergence or is convergence like a burden, a burden of the process. You know what I mean by like, for instance, uh, I think I know a lot of artists and frankly, a lot of them don't end up making art after a while where they really, I think enjoy that divergent process of finding all the ideas. But then that moment of like, Oh, I need to actually pick one converge. And then oh, be, right. they, some people, I think some people love that moment. Some people that, the convergent moment is just, you know, at the slave to the divergent moment. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a good question. To me, that's a separate, I like the convergence. I like okay. when things crystallize and take form. Um, and I like even the, the process when you're just dreaming up ideas and all kinds of possibilities are presenting themselves and you're kind of just in, in this imaginal zone. And I don't know, what are we thinking? Are we talking about, I remember one of the, big frustrations of my earlier career was like, Oh, I have an idea. Is this going to be a, a feature film? Is it going to be a novel? Cause I wrote a couple of novels when I was younger. Is it, you know, trying to find the medium was really difficult or even a song. It was also, I was also a musician. So it, it felt like, it felt like I was spread over too many different media. So I never knew where to put my ideas. And that was a, 
constant frustration, but deciding on one and just going for it, that was a wonderful thing. Um, I'm not, I don't think that my problem is that I can't pick what I want to do. I'm not like a dreamer in the sense that I'm um, just uh, stuck in that phase. Mm -hmm. To me, dreaming is kind of a convergence already. There's, there's something in dreaming in reverie which doesn't need anything else. It's not simply potential for me. There's an actuality in there. It's its own thing. A great book that's all about this, I think, is uh, Fernando Pessoa's Book of Disquiet. Have you have you ever no, heard of this? No, I no. think you'd love. I think you would love this book particularly. Um, Pessoa was a Portuguese poet. He had multiple alter egos, tons of different author names that he would use, and essentially. Most of his work was just found in trunks after his death. Uh, the Book of Disquiet was found in a trunk. It was just tons of just tons of manuscripts, which are all connected because he's writing under these two particular alter egos in this book. Uh, the first half is a, one identity. The second half is another identity. And a lot of the texts are just about this inner space that a person can access, which is not simply a private subjective space, but it has its own objectivity. Mm -hmm. a kind of inner world or astral world that you can explore. Um, and in a way for Pessoa, the, 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 the feeling you get after a while is that he thinks this world exists only so that that inner world can exist. It's the, it's a flip. It's an inversion of how we usually, we usually think of dreams supervening on this world. Sure, sure. He thinks of this world supervening on dreams and um, that I, I kind of connect with another I often quote this line from Thomas Ligotti, who's a fantastic supernatural horror writer, um, American, uh, Italian-American. I'm a fantastic writer. He, uh, in one story, he says, and I, I think I've mangled this over time, but something like uh, the, only, the, the, the one virtue about this world is its capacity in certain moments of suggest, to suggest another. In other yeah. words, like you're taking a walk and it's a shitty banal world, but suddenly you see like a telephone pole with a, I don't know, like a bird perched right. on it and this cloud behind it. And suddenly you're just boof, transported into this other world. And uh, it's when you get these moments of transport that this world is redeemed for Ligotti. That makes, I mean, that feels accurate. Yeah. You know, like in the sense that, yeah, we spend, I mean, you taught about this. Was it the moss, that one poem? It's yeah. kind of like, yeah you, spend, Bishop. yeah, you spend all this time just trying to get back to those little moments that are so few and far between. Yeah. I don't know how art relates to this idea. Um, I think art is, is about, I, I think art like a, a great artwork is like one of those moments in the life of a person. Like I'm not talking about making art. I'm talking about like experiencing art. Um, like for example, that poem by Elizabeth Bishop, uh, the man moth, um, that poem, what does it mean? What is it in my life? Well, it's certainly very close in kind to those poetic, those little moments of poetic transport I'll experience on a walk. It doesn't right. Could you could you yeah. say art is a more accessible version of that in the sense that I think Cheryl. those are very yeah like those moments are very particular. Uh, 
if you're on a walk and you see this thing and it transports you, I guess in the sense, but an artwork you would expect to have more, uh, what would you say? The ability to transport more people than just yourself. Oh, yeah. That, well, that's, right? that's the big test. Yeah. Like Deleuze writes beautifully about this. Gilles Deleuze, French philosopher, he says, um, uh, the great challenge of the artist is to ensure somehow that the work can stand on its own, you know, and sometimes sure, it requires, sure, you, sure. It requires yeah. you to make, to distort and violate what, what would be a realistic interpretation or realistic representation in order to make it stand up on its own. Sometimes it has to become like in order, for example, sometimes in order to express to you what my experience of, I don't know, Paris was like, uh, it, if I just took snapshots of the sites yeah, yeah. that I saw in Paris, I won't, I'll just give, be giving you a kind of shitty banal representation. But if I suddenly transform, transform that experience into some dissonant music or something, or maybe a, a film set in some dream version of Paris where the buildings are all crooked, that might better capture the reality that I'm trying to get at than a faithful representation. So the artist ha like has an experience and then the goal is, well, the goal is to somehow encode or give material form to that experience as sound, as image. And, but that experience is always of that type. I think it's always of that kind of zonal transporting type of experience. Like you're feeling this other world embedded in this one. And the artwork is like a key or, or a window onto that world. Um, Right, and do you think? Yeah, does that make sense? I don't know. Of course, yeah, yeah. You, and you feel as a as a writer or the medium of writing for you over time enabled you to do that most yeah. successfully. I think so. I mean, I don't do much. I mean, I used to write fiction, but I think I found that my voice was like kind of what I do now, which is more what essays, philosophy of a type of a kind, um, and I. I'm, I'm always trying to, and also a lot of talking, which I've never done before, like podcasting and doing courses. That's all new for me, but that's what worked, you know, like you kind of have to go for the green light. Uh, this is what took off. So, um, and, uh, I think that I'm trying to do, I'm doing nonfiction. I'm doing essentially a kind of philosophy, but my goal is to give people a feeling more than it is to like, convince them of the validity of an argument you know it's more like to me it's about giving a, a sense of possibility so i see it as a kind of art project even though it might not look like novels and short short stories or poems or whatever yeah right so yeah. what is a in in terms of the daily life what does that look like are you working on the podcast which is weird studies yeah. which we can get into but what is the I'm always interested in the daily rituals of right. of artists, and I know you have two children. Yeah, um, yeah. you got to make ends meet. But yeah. like, is it mostly writing? Um, literally on on paper? Is it is it typing on a computer? Is it? Oh, I'm lost. talking for podcasting. Um, yeah, I've been I've gone back to writing by hand. This is a recent thing for me, though. Um, a couple of years ago, I got into fountain pens and um, 
uh, my wife got me an amazing Japanese fountain pen for Christmas. It was like, that was my big gift. It was like a $400 pen. Wow. And, uh, and it's, it's, this is it here. Um, and, uh, it's a pilot custom eight, two, three. It's a really great pen, very well reviewed. <laughs> respected pen anyway so uh when i got this pen i got a few more since uh i started to write by hand again so i had to train myself to because i was realizing that there's something about just the environment of like a computer which is not conducive to like productivity for me at all um either i'll write too much or i won't write at all it's very hard to get into a zone where i'm just producing kind of like um usable work you know yeah. um but by training myself to write by hand again i was able to access uh something in me that uh, it was almost lost i don't know it was great um in fact i'm working on a book right now with phil ford my co-host on weird studies we're working on a book that's essentially a kind of like weird studies episode in extreme slow motion so it's like a it's like sure. a book we're writing together but we we take turns with the chapters kind of thing it's um it's like an episode of our show and uh, i'm writing those chapters by hand so and so it's it's so what does the day look like well i usually get up around seven and then i'm with the family and the kids until they go to school uh around 8 30 and then I'll usually finish my cup of tea because I don't drink coffee anymore with my wife. And then around nine, I'll start working. And then, you know, it's like everybody else. I, my plan is to write every day, uh, but, um, or, but usually it's like a bunch of emails and stuff you know? sure, sure. <laughs> and, and meetings and that sort of things. So I've got several projects going on at once. So I have to try to manage my time. Um, and, uh, I work very closely now with uh, a woman named Dawn Hillman. So she's in, she's started off as a, just a kind of like she was interested in the show. And then we started to exchange emails. She's actually great. And she's really helping me kind of organize myself, which I'm very grateful for. So we meet on Monday mornings and then, and then it's, it just depends on the day. And then of course there's the podcast. So we record a show every other week. But we also record an extra or like audio extra for our patrons on Patreon every, on the off weeks. So basically we have to generate a show a week and that involves recording. Well, first of all, it involves reading, um, recording it uh, or watching sometimes, and then finally uh, editing it. And we each do a pass and we have an assistant who also does a pass. Uh, her name is Meredith Michael, and I just want to shout her out because she's amazing. Um, so it's like a full, definitely a full-time thing. Like I work all day and then after dinner, I work some more. And then when everybody's in bed, I work a little bit more. So, um, and are you teaching currently? Uh, well, tomorrow Phil and I are starting a new course, uh, just a four week thing. It's a view along of selected select material from twin peaks. So we're going to be playing the episodes, talking over them, like one of those, like kind of the DVD commentaries from back in the day. And then uh, we'll have a little group discussions after that. So it's, it's kind of a simple thing, but it's, yeah. So that's starting tomorrow, just four weeks. Uh, and then I'm planning a big course in September. Um, yeah. I can't talk about that yet. Cause I'm not, I haven't really nailed this, the topic doing a lot of reading. I mean, the biggest challenge in my life, I think is reading. You probably relate to this. I think I was going to say like, yeah. It's, the time 
Because you yeah. read, right? You're not listening to a book. You read. Yeah. Oh, That's I read. Yeah. Immense amount of. Yeah. No, I'm. I, I'm admittedly saddened by how little time I have to read, and how I choose what I read in some ways. Because I'm not going to read like Gene Wolfe when I'm already stressed out by tons of work. Right. You no, know, I'm not going to read challenging. Right. So, I hope one day. If it exists, you know, I'm like 50 and I can just read. I think, and, uh, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I'm, it depends on your, I, I have to read. Um, so there's a lot of reading I need to do. And there's a lot of reading I really should do, you know, sure. like, um, and then there's the reading I want to do. <laughs> right. Uh, and of course, I'm never going to be able to read all that. So I, isn't that funny? Like, you go to, I always think about that. You go to a library, even a small library. And you couldn't read those books in one lifetime. And yeah. a lot of them are a lot of them are garbage, complete They're, garbage. Yeah. <laughs> but even if you just stuck to the good ones, you couldn't. Uh, I mean, there was a time, you know, in like, let's say the year thirteen fifty, where there were people who'd read pretty much everything that was available in, in their language, sure. certainly in yeah. Latin. Um, would you have like ten thousand books uh, at that point? Yeah. Um, some people have that in their house now, uh, and it's just a small drop in the ocean of available literature. So now reading is a real challenge. I think it is for everyone these days, but I, you know, I'm just looking at the pile of books right now that I haven't even opened yet. And I bought like some of them I bought two years ago. Uh, so yeah. My yeah. house is full of books everywhere. Uh, so one thing I did that did help is I bought myself a reading chair. I realized okay. that I didn't have a space sure, dedicated sure. to reading. So I got a reading chair, just an Ikea chair, but it's yeah. good. And then I try to read. Uh, I'll read a lot during the day here and there, but I try to like devote like an hour to two hours at night to reading. Uh, and that over time, you can get a lot of reading done if you just you just have yeah. find the time for it. But it's not it's not easy. And books on the tape or... Do you ever, have you ever even tried to listen to a book? It's a strange um, experience, I think. Yeah, I have, I have tried like shorter books. Yeah. In fact, when I did the, um, I think you were part of that, the neuro learning, uh, the orthodoxy one, the GK Chesterton. Yeah. yeah. That one, um, I mean, I, I have an old copy I've read. It's probably the book I've read the most in my life, most often. But uh, during that time I was doing like long walks every day. And, and so I listened to the book. Um, while walking. And I, just I really like that. Yeah, just to review, just to experience it again in this other new way and have, because you have different ideas when you're walking than if you're sitting down reading. So, and I do intend to, my friend Jacob Foster of UCLA, he's trying to like convince me to listen to the audio version of um, The Dawn of Everything. David Graeber, uh, what's his name? Oh, I can't remember his, Wingrow, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big, big book. Um, mm -hmm. It's a kind of anthropological, archaeological book. And uh, he tries, he's trying to convince me to do the audio version because it's it's like one of those thousand pagers. But if you just listen to a bit every day and you can listen at like 1.5, you can change the playback speed. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, Strange. Uh, because you read a lot faster than you, you know, than you speak or you listen to someone speak. So you can... If, if it's well read, you can actually supposedly increase the playback speed and still experience the full 
the full That's thing. True. I haven't tried I've never, it. I've never thought about this idea that you read faster than someone would read. Yeah, that, that's. I hate thinking about reading when I'm reading. You know what I'm saying? You hate thinking about reading when you're reading. Yeah, yeah like like, re- and especially if I'm like thinking about, did I retain the last sentence? <laughs> oh, it's the, I know, I hate that. I get in this like weird loop. Very yeah, strange. And- reading is very weird. Uh, <laughs> it is very weird. It's probably why it's not going to even exist <laughs> in like 30, 40 years. I can't. I don't even know. Like. I don't yeah. know where it's going. It, it's not like it was always a part of our human's life. It's not even that old of a technology. I don't know if I would call it a technology, but. Well, it's it's old if you include like, if you if you include like sacred writing among, in the priestly classes and that sort of thing, it goes back like 5,000 years, right? That's true. Um, that's true. But if you look at just mass literacy, that's very recent. And I think that's on its way out. Um me too. So I think writing will go back to being something that's practiced by a specific group within society. Yeah. Um, and uh, it'll go back to being, I think, you know, reading has always been quasi occult, quasi magical as an, I mean, there's this great scene in the movie black robe, which is a kind of a classic Canadian film about a Jesuit priest sent to new France and like sent to like evangelize the first nations and he's um, living with the Huron, I think, or they know the Wendat. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I saw the movie, but he's with the, this First Nation community. And he's this is the very early days. And he shows them. Basically, he'll whisper a word. I can't remember the scene now. I'm recounting a scene. I can't remember. But I think he like Just whispers a up. word, writes it down, and shows it to someone else. And then the person reads the word so basically he shows like writing is like kind of telepathy it's a way of transporting thoughts right right with marks on paper um just kind of getting into this idea that writing is is really it is really weird um it's really weird that we're able to just look at little these little marks and see images you know there's something magical about that and so yeah, you're right up. i think people are reading less and less i mean unless you include Unless you include like texting and reading, but more, more I don't don't think I do. Yeah. Yeah, I don't (laughs) think I do. Um, in respect to, so it sounds like, you know, you're not a wanderer. I don't know if that's fair, but you know, you, you've kind of had a circuitous path. Is that accurate? And then on that path, what do you feel? are the timeline accomplishments you know like when you die there'll be a book there'll be the timeline right right yeah i'm assuming reclaiming art yeah i'm hoping there'll be uh, more weird than studies that, yeah. weird studies yeah no i'm sure there is there yeah. are more um yeah no no i'm but just, just kind of yeah. curious like if what happened was you found successes in certain mediums and then you said well i should probably pursue that more or if you kind of have the opposite effect you find that this book works but then you're kind of satisfied and you say well maybe i want to do a different thing Mm. with that with that same focus right um i think that as i've grown older i've become much more focused on the one thing um in my twenties, as I was saying earlier, I had, I was in bands. So I was, I was a songwriter and a 
I was originally a drummer. Then I stopped playing drums and I was doing guitar and singing. Uh, and I did that. I was also making films and aspiring to make films, writing films and directing short films. I was, I had written two novels by the time I was 21. The first one is just unreadably bad. The second one is just as almost as what bad. are they called? What are they called? Uh, the, the first one, I, I, I don't even want to tell you this, <laughs> the titles of these yeah, the that's what one was I'm, called that's Star I'm... Puppets, which I've always liked. I like that. I like that title. Oh, I'm seeing all sorts of funny things. I like yeah. not I like not knowing about it, but I like knowing the name Star Puppets. And you won't tell me the first book. The first book, I'm trying to remember what title I settled on at the end. I think it was called the it was called the Blind Circuit. Okay. <laughs> it's like yeah. a name without there's no imagery there. It's just nothing. <laughs> it's just like um it was Blind Circuit. It was an <laughs> attempt to it's so abstract, but the book was, um, I don't know. I was 19 when I wrote, I remember I wanted to beat Mary Shelley because I knew she'd written a book at 19 <laughs> and I wanted to make sure that I at least match that. I was like, it doesn't need to be good. I just need to finish it. And so I did, but it, it was kind of riffing off of naked lunch at the time. I was really into William Burroughs and Henry Miller and that sort of stuff. Um, okay. No, but, I, I find the embarrassing early stuff is a very distilled there's something there that tells you a lot um, it's all there really yeah you know and then you're just trying there. to sort through yeah that or yeah. hide that in some kind of more uh, eloquent way where it's like yeah. so anyway i don't want to derail you but you no, got no, those but two so, books. so there were those so, so the, I, i'm just trying to express that yeah. i was going to university and studying and thinking maybe i want to be an academic um so i was really spread thin i didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was just trying different things and trying to find out, well, if I just keep throwing balls, somebody's going to throw one back at some point. But it was just, I just felt like I was like, you know, whacking the tennis ball into the dark and nothing was ever coming back, just picking up more balls. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, and then, uh, and, but then some of the things were, it's not like I wasn't getting anywhere. I, we, I had a couple of bands that were pretty good. I think uh, I made some good short films. I, they showed in film festivals, but I can, I never had the drive. I was always wanting for waiting for somebody to say, all right, come this way, do this. Um, almost like I needed a direction a little bit. I couldn't just, I was pushing myself along, but then I'd get distracted and interested in something else. And I changed directions. And it was very frustrating until I wrote this one essay for Reality Sandwich at the time. Um, I don't know if you remember. If you, okay, so Reality Sandwich was an online magazine. I think it was like the year, like 2000, around 2000 to 2000, 2003 to 2012 was its kind of apogee, I think. Uh, and they were publishing all kinds of stuff about consciousness and psychedelics. Uh, it was started by um, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, who wrote a book about 2012 and... Um, uh, uh, a, a very good book on psychedelics called Breaking Open the Head. And so I was really into that sort of thing in the early 2000s and um, had read Pinchbeck's work. Uh, I was very interested in all that, Terrence McKenna and that sort of thing. So I, I came to all that a little later and um, in my life, you know, because I was in, at this point, I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And then one day I just decided to pitch an article to them. And I hadn't written an essay since 
uh, since college, which I, I mean, I, I started, I stopped going to college in 2000. So this was a few years later, like six years later. And they took it. It was on Kubrick. It was on Stanley Kubrick as a shamanic filmmaker, as a kind of like psychedelic filmmaker, um, which today sounds obvious. But at that time, that didn't, Kubrick was at that time was very much in the kind of an established kind of someone, people who read the New Yorker like Kubrick. It was, it wasn't associated anymore. He had been in the sixties, but he was no longer associated with the counterculture, quote unquote, so to speak. Um, so they took it and I wrote this piece called the Kubrick gaze and it did really well. And then they, uh, reality sandwich or Daniel Pinchbeck started an imprint with North Atlantic books to publish stuff that of the type that they were publishing on reality sandwich. And they invited me to, they, they, first of all, they put my Kubrick, Kubrick gaze article in a book. That book was published by penguin Tarcher. And then they invited me to submit something for their, this new line of manifestos. They were, they were, they were releasing. And at that time I'd written a few pieces for reality sandwich. And I just really, really liked the form of nonfiction, like nonfiction, I don't like that term of just essay writing, uh, thought thinking, a philosophy. I'd always been interested in philosophy. I remember this was one of the biggest problems I had in my twenties was I kept thinking I should stop reading philosophy. I should be an artist. You can't be a philosopher and an artist. They don't mix. I thought if you're a philosopher, you're just basically sabotaging, sabotaging those parts of yourself that need to be not thinking and just creating. It was mm -hmm, a big mm -hmm. conflict. Um, and at that point, I, so then I submitted the, what became Reclaiming Art and, uh, and that was the ball that got thrown back. So that book came out, um, publisher did very little in the manner of, of publicity, like nothing. Um, and yet the book found readers. I met Phil Ford that way, uh, all kinds of, everything started opening up and suddenly, um, I was, I started the podcast and that's what that's what eventually just worked. So that's, it could have been the film. It could have been one of the other projects, but that's the one that, that did it. So that's the, so now I'm very focused on that path. Um, and where do you imagine that path leads? Uh, where do I imagine it leads? I want, I don't know. I asked Nowhere. <laughs> yeah. You don't, I don't think everyone ponders things of this Nature, I do. But... I used to. I'm just realized. I'm kind of shocked that I don't have an answer for you. There are books I want to write. That's all okay, I know. Yeah. Like books, and... like 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 thick books. No, thin little books. Yeah. I Paper was working thin. on a thick book, which is why I haven't published anything since, like anything of substance since um since that book. It's because I was working on this big ass book called Groundwork for Philosophy of Magic, which I now realize I not only I don't I would. I would hate the author of this book if I saw it mm. sitting on. I bought a book recently. Well, there's that Graeber book I was talking about, The Dawn of Everything. It's like nothing needs to be this long. Um, <laughs> I've been getting into this one philosopher. His name is Byung Chul Han. He's a Korean German philosopher. And he I think just you sent me a book, the, the one about ritual, the disappearance yes, of ritual. Right, yeah. disappearance of ritual. Yeah. yeah. Um, he writes these beautiful, tiny little books. Uh, in the style of the 17th century philosophers who would write very small books, you know, uh, Leibniz and people like that, Thomas Brown. And so I, yeah. I love that. And I've really grown very fond of that form. So what I'm doing now is planning, actually writing a bunch of smaller books 
which can be published independently individually. Um, and th this is a recent discovery, so this should really um, increase my output over the next few years because I've got so much material. Um, I'm also there's all kinds of developments I can't be talking about right now that are happening, which are changing everything. So I see a big potential coming up, like I'm already in it. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But so, but it's hard to define what that will look like. But what I want it to look like is more time to write. Um, that's what I need is more time to write. And so more financial, the financial means to take the time to write. So bigger deals, bigger advances, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, just to, no. to afford the time I need. Yeah. That's my that makes That makes sense. I'm always, I think I'm always interested in um, growth from the artist's perspective, not from like the, you know, mm -hmm. businessman's perspective, because it's really can be really quite abstract, but I, I find most artists know when it's happening. Mm -hmm. um, they might not always be able to communicate the benchmarks per se. Um, but contrast that with the kind of interesting, you know, there's that kind of nebulous abstract growth, but then there's also like that very human and real uh, response that comes from when someone likes your, your stuff. Yeah. You know, like all of this, because there's this propensity in artists to be like, I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks. Right. That's true. Uh, well, I think it's quite rare that people feel that way. They usually mean, I don't care what this particular person thinks or that particular group, but, um, it's interesting to me that, you know, all it takes is one person to receive it. Like you said, you wrote this, yeah. little thing and then boom it works and i think when i was younger i thought that was like a weak position or something mm -hmm. to need to need that um i don't feel that way anymore no but i think you know there's, what I mean? a, there's no I, I agree with you a hundred percent there is validity you need to tell yourself that to a certain because you kind of have to not care at first because you yeah. have to do what you you can't be you can't be creating for this imaginary audience that you think will like what you do. What's so gratifying is when something somebody likes something that you made, and you didn't make it for them. You just made it because that's how it needed to be, and suddenly people like it. That's the validity. Um, it's not the satisfaction of like somebody who works at a marketing marketing agency and does all this focus group work and research and then comes up with a detergent commercial that actually sells the detergent. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's not well, like that, yeah. you know, that would be more of the business type. It's more like, man, I did this. It was a dream. It was it was something that existed only for me. And now people get it. And that's the big thing. And like, that's, that's what's so satisfying is that I was being honest and it's, and it's being heard. That is a feeling that that's a beautiful thing. And, and so it, it comes, it's a weird combination of the two attitudes. On the one mm -hmm. hand, you can't care what people think. On the other hand, you need, you hope that they will like it despite the fact that you didn't care what they thought, <laughs> you know? And, and yeah, I was, you, it, yeah. it's a piston. There's some kind of weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, en it's endless. It's, well, uh, I'm curious about your experience because, and if you've talked about this with other guests of yours, let me know and we can just move to something else. But um, 
so you were you're an artist and now you're running an art center um yeah so how does that feel on your path does that feel like <laughs> you know because i don't know i'll just mm-hmm. before you answer uh neil gaiman uh, you know neil gaiman the fantasy writer yeah so he gave a um, commencement speech once that i really like i thought it was a great commencement speech for young people graduating from uh, an art school somewhere an art college and he has this thing about the mountain, you know, when you start a lot, you start life as a freelancer, as an artist who's trying to like, just really determined to make it in their medium. So he's like, imagine a mountain and you know what, what's at the top of the mountain. Maybe it's like, you know, whatever it is you envision, you need to go, what you want to become, who you want to emulate, what you want to be, what you want your life to be like, ultimately, it's kind of the question you've been asking me. And then whenever a fork in the path comes up, you always ask yourself, will this, will going this way bring me closer to the mountain or further? I mean, he says it much better than this. The point is that did, did this opportunity, this thing you're doing now with, uh, with the Williams Center, it, do you feel that this is, is this a kind of unexpected turn or is, does this feel right for you? Uh, and, and, and both. or does it feel like a new thing? Yeah, yeah both, right? Yeah, both. I mean, at a certain point, I realized, like, I thought I was a dra- drawer, stupid word, but drafts. I mean, I don't call myself a draftsman because it invokes this very technical individual. Penciler? Um, yeah. So I realized at a certain point, maybe like the way you re- realize with the writing, that drawing for me is just a, a means to an end. And that end can be so many things. Mm-hmm. And so once I broke through that, it opened me up to different ways of making, like whether it's fabrication, furniture making, the art center, curation, et cetera. Um, and you just said I, furniture making, curation, and administration as just like well, different it's things a, you can do with your drawing <laughs> skill. That's pretty cool. I think, <laughs> I think they're related. Uh, I totally get it. Yeah. For me, I'm trying to, I I was talking to my priest and uh, something new for me talking to a priest. There's a funny Gurdjieff quote. If you want to lose your faith, make friends with a priest. I think it's that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And what we we were talking about, like natural family planning, right? Which I'm yet to understand. But what uh, is so shocking to me is, I guess maybe it's the idea of grace, but this idea of surrendering to life or God's will or God's plan, mm-hmm. or if you're more of a hippie, it's the universe. Yeah. I, I'm a very uh, goal oriented person who plans a lot. And so, but at a certain point in my life, I think I did embrace the notion of, of that, whatever that is. I still don't actually get it. I think I'm, <laughs> uh, my mind maybe isn't configured to be like that gracious, like full surrender. Yeah. to life. And I don't, I'm still trying to get it, but I think there's that aspect for me. Like I'm called to do things, I believe. Yeah. I think most people are. Um, yeah. I think people who have problems with this, I do I have a calling, et cetera. They're, they're getting in the way of being told what that thing is. They yeah. think that they think they can project it with their will and it's their path. But, um, I don't think that's how it works for me. And although I have great respect, I say this all the time on the podcast for uh, like Miyazaki or someone who can take uh, manga and do it their whole life. 
Yeah. And they're just like so rigidly on this path. I think they're superior to me. Yeah. Uh, those individuals. I agree. I feel. This. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, there feels like there's not a life lived there. And so maybe they're martyrs of art and maybe I'm more mm -hmm. selfish. Like, yeah. It's very, I, I like human, like as much as I struggle with it, I like humanity and drawing in a room wasn't enough. So mm. there's a practicality to the decisions made, but still I feel called to like, you know, I have an opportunity that's just so surreal and remains surreal. Um, I also like narrative quirks. Like I like, and this could be a flaw, but I like the idea of thinking of my life detached and, and in a book. And uh, yeah. there's something cool about someone who made comics for eight years and then suddenly they're running an art center. But there's yeah. something very uncool about someone who just makes comics for, despite what I just said, for 60 years straight. Um, yeah. I'm like tied to the narrative of my life. In a, I know. I know what you mean. I think yeah. that's good. Um to look at your life as a kind of story and to go, well, you know, even when you experience a bad turn, like something shitty happens and you think, well, that does make for a good story though. Doesn't it? That this happened. <laughs> yeah. So but you can do some really very, good? yeah. You yeah. can do and, some very uh, fucking irresponsible, crazy shit with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I'm sure we've both done, but yeah. the, the thing is, I, I love what you're saying about grace. I really believe that I live by that. Um, there was a point in my life where I really kind of just discovered that I had faith. Um, I fought against it. I hated the fact that it was happening kind of like Jonah, you know, getting mm -hmm. swallowed by the whales. So he doesn't have to go to Nineveh or whatever. Um, and, uh, and finally just kind of, uh, gave up, surrendered to it. And that, that's that coincides with the moment that stuff started happening for me, you know, professionally, almost like I was getting in my own way before that. And I'm not being um, like, it wasn't like a road to Damascus thing. Like fate. it was just like a kind of trust, a trust in yeah. the world that I didn't have before. Um, it took. Yeah. I, I it wish took. I could. Yeah. I wish I could speak of very overt visions like William, yeah. Bla like William Blake or, or, even right. people in the course you taught, there were people who were like, I was talking shit on an atheist forum. And I remember one guy said this and then like a voice spoke yeah. to me and like, I don't have this. Uh, <laughs> I think again, people think a calling is like that. Like someone's like, yo, this is what you got to do now. Yeah. Like Noah some, or something. Some people experience or yeah. Or, or Paul, yeah. you know, <laughs> some people do experience that. Uh, I would agree. My thing is the same. It's like, it is, yeah, and that's all. It sounds amazing, but probably also torturous. Um, but I would agree, mine is very subtle, like yours. It's like a finer feeling where uh, sometimes I describe it as a tautness in the head, mm -hmm. or like like a tautness in general. I would say in life, and yeah. that's all. And you can barely tell if it's <laughs> if you're on the path, almost. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to say it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and it's like it's moment to moment sometimes. Like, yeah, it, it, I, I did have a pretty drastic, dramatic experience with ayahuasca, um, uh, which in which, I mean, yeah, I was 
basically asking for it at that point, but I did get some <laughs> intense visionary experiences there, um, which play into all this. But before, um, so this was before the graceful. Surrender? No, this was part of it. This was all part in the same period. Mm. There was no one moment. It was just over a, f- a period of a few years as I realized that my then girlfriend, now wife and I were going to have, be having children. I had a kind of crisis. This is before she, she wasn't pregnant. None, none of that. I just, we were, we were moving into our thirties and I was like, okay, things are getting serious. What have I done? I've been a bohemian for 12 years now. Um, and so it's just kind of a crisis. Uh, what's my purpose? What's my use? You know, what, what use does the world have for me? Um, and that's what, and all these things happen in the context of this kind of moment of crisis. Uh, and then one day it wasn't so much experiencing something as waking up and realize that something had happened. I didn't even realize it. I was already, I already believed I already had this trust. Like it was already given to me. Um, and from there it was like much smoother. This is after I started writing though. Um, but after that, it just, then the book came and, and, um, we moved from Toronto to Ottawa. That was a big, and things calmed down, things focused, things were, yeah, I don't know, just changed things. And it's been less of a struggle since then for me personally. Yeah. 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 I would agree. Yeah. So it's just like, follow the green light is an expression I use for that. It's like, well, light's green over there. So let's go there. And, you know, I also, I like to just take things as they come, but I, I, I would be lying if I said that I'm just satisfied doing that. I do have like uh, a few books I want to write and that's, it's very important. If I think of the possibility that I might die like tonight, not having written these books, it's a, it's not a good feeling. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I have the same willful struggle with, um, life. Mm-hmm. As my, on my, on my Chevy Impala, I have man proposes, God disposes. And that's nice. basically for me, that's what I do. I propose yeah. over, over and over and over. And most of them get disposed, <laughs> but some of them don't, but that's, yeah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be proposing all the time. You know? No. Right. That's the graceful thing to me is like the, the lack of shame and humiliation at trying or being something. Um, yeah. And then just having no, I don't know if it's no expectations, but knowing this, I, I do feel life is absurd and surreal at times. Again, I don't know how that wrestles and tangles with, with Catholicism. Um, Cause I don't know if that's compatible, you know? Um, well, there's that great moment in the garden garden of Gethsemane when uh, this is like the night before he's going to be tortured and killed. Right. Um, Jesus is in the garden and he's having kind of a panic attack, uh, sweating blood and just basically losing his cool. And he says, um, uh, how does he put it? It's like something like if, if it be thy will, take this cup from me but thy will be done. You know, there's like two things he's saying there. It's like, 
if yeah, it's yeah. if it's okay to please take this away from me don't make me do what i know i have to do please do something universe god so that this doesn't happen but if this must happen then i fully accept it it's kind of a yeah. weird double yeah thing. yeah it's like no, I, this it. is what i want this is what my ego wants this is what myself yeah. wants but ultimately that's my prop that's my proposal but I will accept your disposition <laughs> no matter what. And yeah, uh, yeah exactly. It. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a, again, that feels like a very accurate description of life or even making. I feel like yeah. making is making things brought me back for me, the process of making. Like making furniture, making yeah, even art, uh, de decorating. Because I know you've been doing a lot of interior design, that sort of thing. That brought me back to humanity. But making okay. brought me back to a relationship with the the, the divine, I would say. Um, right. Because I, I believe it's recursive. I just believe it's a way to slightly understand that which begets life. Yeah. Well, process. that's token. Yeah. Have you read Tolkien's, uh, J.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories? No. Um, it's it's, no, it's really actually. worth it. And he talks about what he calls sub-creation. He's like, artists are often called creators. Really what they are is sub-creators. What we are when we, when we create worlds is we're, we're engaging in the process that made us, that created us. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the difference is that the process that created us had no pre-existing material. It was like boom, big bang, right? It just sure, came sure. out of nowhere. But we're So we're sub-creators, but in sub-creation, there's something innately spiritual about that. When you're making something, it doesn't need to be like, sculpting no yeah make anything uh, anything it could be making uh, like baking it could be making furniture it could be making um whatever it is that you want to make there's something in the greek word for that is po po poesis poesis which is where we get the word poetry but in greek it just meant making making something um yeah and i, I think what's yeah. interesting is the artists struggle with the idea that they are the god i think yeah that was a big problem i had not even the god even a god not a sub the kind of romantic thing you mean like this yeah. kind of ideal yeah 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 it's um i believe it's actually the cause of the most dangerous pitfalls of being like an artist in contemporary society is mm -hmm. that almost luciferian mm -hmm. not almost it's straight up luciferian yeah uh, framework uh, that the artist falls into that society often places them within. If you think about, I mean, music shows are far more relevant and yeah. uh, ecstatic than church. Yeah. So I, I get why they get confused, but that was a big moment for me realizing like, Oh no, these are, I'm not at that point. I'm definitely sub in many ways you know, way beneath. Um, that's a very important realization. I think that what, that you're not a God. You're, yeah. You're not a God. You're <laughs> not, you're not. And, and it's actually like, I don't, again, I don't pretend to understand aspects of Zen or Buddhism. Um, but it seems like some people in the West often can get confused with this idea. That like, Oh, you are, you are God. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't know if that's even being transmitted through those philosophies and, but no, no, I don't think that's accurate. You know, 
No. Like I think in some ways they might say, they might just be saying you should try to attain an optimal healthy uh temple. Mm-hmm. This is a very different idea. No, uh, yeah. Temple's not the god. The temple just houses allows the god in. Yeah. Now I I my my spiritual my spirituality such as it is it really really requires a radically transcendent divinity. Um, the idea of like a panpsychic or like pantheistic idea of like we are God, um, you know, we're all just fingers and we're all yeah. finger puppets and the, it's all the same hand kind of thing. That kind of like um, uh, what's his name, uh, Alan Watts kind of thing. I, yeah. I, it's not really what what does it for me. Um, for me, mag- the magic, the miracle the wonder of life comes from encountering something that's radically other, something that I can't just subsume or assimilate to myself or identify with something that's there in between something that's so radically other that there is no hope of identification. And, but, but that in itself becomes the moment of communion. It's right. that we will never be one. If we're, we're only one. in so far as we're both standing apart this is what um plotinus the great neoplatonic philosopher he called it uh, he he was actually quoting an older neoplatonist named nemenius i think and the, uh, what he said was that the goal is to be alone with the alone i love that alone mm. with the alone um mystical union as a kind of encounter with radical alterity i find that much more for me i mean it's just my what what moves me. That's what, that's what I like. Um, and so, uh, the artists can never attain to that. In a way, the artist is encounters that radical otherness in the work, right? There's a way in, there's a sense in which you can never really claim, claim ownership of your work. If your work is good, it's good because it's not you. You can't take credit for what it, that part of it that makes it great isn't your responsibility, isn't something you put in. It was something that emerged on its own and that you, yeah, yeah. You, you, you should be proud and honored to be able to put your name on that. But ultimately it's bigger than you, right? Yeah. You shepherded it. Exactly. That's all. Yeah. You I actually it. think you, you, you achieve great objectivity when you, that's another shift I had it allowed me to have greater objectivity when viewing the work when acknowledging that I received the idea. Yeah. Because my ego wasn't tied up in the quality of it at that moment or, or even the nature of the idea. I read my comics and I'm just like, uh, it doesn't feel like I made them. I don't know what they're about half the time. Um, and I'm okay with that now. I'm yeah. okay with it in general. Of course, it enters a human realm in which there's going to be interpretation. Um, and you have to be all right with that. I think there's like a kind of, I think the pressure we're putting on that type of responsibility, although I understand it, is creating less art in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a restriction at play. But I like um, what what it does, that attitude of seeing the work as kind of like, not really up to you is you, you end up looking at it from the point of view of like a, a craft craftsman, 
How is it yeah. made? Is it, does it stand up on its own? It, does it work? Um, and that kind of more humble way of approaching the work, I think, um, first of all, well, it completely dispels the idea that you're some kind of like genius. Although there are geniuses. We've had this discussion before. Yeah, there's, there there's... are people who are master craftsmen, but that's, that's what they are. Master craftsmen um, who do something that no one else has done. And, um, but that happens in carpentry as well. It happens in all kinds of lowly quote unquote arts that nobody, sure. nobody's like followed the history of and the way they have with painting or whatever. Um, there is genius, there is brilliance, but ultimately it's just, it seems to me that no matter what your art form is, even if it's dance, like in dance, it's just you, right? But it's you and the body, you and your body. There's always a material that you're working that will not allow you to simply do whatever you want or assert a kind of omnipotence. Uh, the material always resists and also the ideas resist and the ideas and the material impose their will on it. I mean, Carl Jung had a beautiful theory of art. He's like, for Carl Jung, it's an inversion. The artwork chooses the artist and finds a way, chooses the right artist to come into the world through. So the artist is simply the soil in which this, this yeah. plant that is the artwork grows. Um, maybe that's a little too much, but the point is that um, this encounter with something that's bigger than you is baked right into the artistic process. In my experience and the experience of many artists that I've, whose words and thoughts on this I've read and, um, and that's okay. And that dispels the old romantic Byronic, like artist is God thing, but it, it, in another way, it emphasizes the divinity of the art itself. Art becomes more divine when the artist becomes merely the midwife that brings sure. it into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Now in respect to, um, I think we have to talk about podcasting. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's got to be some plugs. In I feel here, like you know? an expert in this one. Yeah. <laughs> As a writer, yeah. I feel very, uh, you know, but podcasting I can talk about. <laughs> Do you think of yourself? I hate the word podcaster. Don't really like it. You know, and I came to remember, it wasn't even a thing I came to find out recently, that it's just related to iPods. Yeah. It's so bad. I know. And who, who even <laughs> knows about those anymore? Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think, again, I'm trying to, I think I want to highlight, well, one, the weird, because the weird matters to you. Mm -hmm. But podcasting as a medium, and as we're having a podcast, I think it's relevant. But what it allows you to do. Yeah. And, and also... Well, collaboration, there's a lot to talk about there, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I never thought, I had no interest in podcasts mm -hmm. when I started this uh, project with Phil. Um, Phil was into podcasts and it was his idea that we should start a podcast because we had this crazy correspondence. We were writing each other 30,000 word emails, like, yeah, I'm exaggerating a bit, but <laughs> emails that were several thousand words long and, and, uh, over a couple of years. And we would just, um, we found that we had so much to talk about and we had, so we would talk on the phone, have these productive, really amazing creative 
conversations. And he was like, I think we should start a podcast. I never thought of it. I had no interest in it. Uh, I liked radio at the time. You know, I listened to, this is, this is only like 2016, you know, 2017. So I was still, I would listen to like CBC in Canada. Um, so I liked the idea of talk radio. I never thought of myself doing that. Um, but weirdly, my mom, my mom had a couple of years before that had gone to see a, uh, like a fortune teller, mm-hmm. a psychic or a, a palm reader. And this person, she, she'd asked them, she asked this person about, her two sons because i have a brother and this palm reader or tarot reader i don't remember what their medium was said some really crazy stuff and one of the things that she said was your older your oldest son is going to be talking to many many people and at that time i was just simply writing and directing tv i i you know anything everything wasn't doing anything public um, and then she told me, I, so she says, you're going to be speaking and lots of people will listen. I said, that makes no sense. There's no road there for me. Uh, what, what am I going to do? Like, like, uh, I'm going to become a public speaker, a politician. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. And it wasn't until we had the podcast and it started working. I'm like, oh my God, that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm talking. I never thought I'd do that. I'm not someone who, I mean, I, I love having conversations, but I never saw myself as a public speaker. I was very shocked to do that. And it was because of Phil that I did it. Um, but then when the podcast kind of took off and found all these listeners, and that was the second big time in my life where the, the ball came back. It was like, holy shit, this is something we need to be doing. And so I got interested in the medium and what it is to, to podcast, what a podcast, you know, essentially it's, you know, McLuhan writes brilliantly about how technologies work, right? So you'll have a technology it'll obsolesce, it'll become obsolescent. And then a new technology will come. And then the new technology will produce a new environment in which the old obsolete technology can be revived in a new form. So essentially like the best thing about radio for me was talk radio, but there was less and less and less of that in the late days of radio, right? At the end of the 20th century and the first decade and a half of the 21st, radio was going down. And then podcasting came and basically just to me, what it did is that crystallized that one aspect of radio that I loved. I love stuff like Art Bell, like Coast to Coast AM, that sort of that late night radio thing. Um, Except that, of course, podcasting is usually not live, but uh, long conversations. You know, I always thought, wow, there's I like listening to long conversations uh, that, that allow themselves to meander and explore things. So, um, I, I, yeah, it's the one redeeming quality of our age is I think podcasts. Um, <laughs> not that I listen to many of them. Um, but, uh, I do love the ones I listen to. I really, really, really love the, this medium. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It was worth all the irredeemable things. I, I don't know if it's it. worth it, but at least <laughs> there's kidding. that. You know? Yeah. No, but so when you think about uh, weird studies, mm-hmm. like, do you guys sit down and try to think about where you want that to go? I know, yes. for instance, you had a larger project about the tarot cards, which is a very large ambition. Yeah. So, so there, I, there yeah. I started to see like a, 
what would you say? More challenging framework there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't really treat it like that. Um, yeah. We forget that we're doing it. Then, oh shit, it's time to do another terror episode. We look, we do it very informally. In fact, you know, um, Salvatore Ambulando, it is solved by walking, has been our motto since the beginning. So, at when we started the podcast, kind of funny because the first we recorded the first episode, I think, two and a half times before we had something we were happy with. And then we actually recorded like 10 or 12 shows, if I remember correctly, uh, before we even started uh, putting them online. Um, so we had a bunch in the can and then we were recording. We were like months ahead of where the show was for a while. And then, of course, eventually that just fell apart. So but the, the very first attempt we made, we had a kind of structure. You know, we had a section for letters from listeners and we had like segments, you know, um, and some people like one of our model podcasts, like uh, I consider them to be mentors because it's by listening to them that I learned how to do this to a certain extent is a very bad wizards with Tamler Summers and Dave Pizarro. Uh, it's a psychologist and a philosopher who have long conversations, but they still kind of segment it. They have a main theme. They'll talk about one thing at the beginning, then Phil and I, we quickly realized that the structure thing did not work at all. What we needed was like anti-structure, total mm -hmm. anti-structure. So um, we just pick a topic. We didn't even discuss it before. At first, we were exchanging notes. Like, these are my notes for the topic. And what are your notes? Oh, okay. Well, we'll see how this works. And pretty soon, we realized that all we need is a topic. And even if we don't quite have the same idea of what the topic is, that's fine. And then we just meet and then we just have a conversation. And the great thing is that at first that made for long, messy conversations that we had to edit down to something, you know, presentable. But now we kind of have a sense of the shape. So there's very little editing at this point. We just clean it up and take out all mm -hmm. some of the ums and ahs. But um, it just, it's the spontaneity of conversation that that made our show what it is. Um, so this it's, it really is kind of it is what it is, you know. And um, and we're just for some reason our dynamic makes that work. But we had to learn not to try to impose any structure on it, right? Um, and that took a while. Uh, but that makes it great. I don't think we'd still be doing it otherwise. We would have no, yeah, worked yeah. out, yeah. I'm trying to think, is there an episode that, you know, I'm trying to imagine a listener who doesn't know who you are. Right. And they want to encounter your most distilled achievements. One is art or reclaiming art, right? Yeah. For, for me personally, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then in respect to weird studies, um, is, there an, is there an episode you think that stands immediately out? We just had to do that today, actually, Phil and I, because for, for reasons um, to be discussed later, uh, we had to like find an episode or two that really represents the show. And at this point, we have like 150 episodes. So it's hard to, to choose. Um, I, 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 for some reason, my mind always goes to the episode we did on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe it's because I'm particularly proud of what I came up with for that one. <laughs> Maybe that's all it is. I, I like to think that it's actually a strong episode. And what I like about that episode is that it's, ex it's exemplary. I, I could easily say, Oh, uh, we did a show on, um, 
the movie Under the Skin, or we did a show on Twin Peaks, or all kinds of weird stuff that you would associate with the name Weird Studies. But what I like is when we find weird stuff in classic mainstream media, yeah. um, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I think we found some really cool, really cool things there. And so for some reason, I, I find myself recommending that one. Now, I haven't listened to it in a long time. Uh, we do have an episode that we did late last year called On Weirding, where we kind of like talk about what it is we do on Weird Studies. Um, what is What does it mean to weird? Um, so we kind of just borrowed the logic of the what's you know what happened in academia with queering you know sure, sure, queer sure. studies and just like applied it to the weird what is what does it mean to weird something um and we talk about that in that episode so that's maybe that's a kind of conceptually uh appropriate introduction um if, but really uh, really i just recommend that you just go through the list and pick something that you know like we did one on john carpenter which i'm really proud mm -hmm. of we talk about a bunch of john, john carpenter films so i, I don't know I don't know what's the one I recommend the most. Just if there was a yeah. yeah, that's fair. I think yeah. that's good. That's what I did. Yeah, exactly. Um, if there was a weird academy, <laughs> who who would be the architect? You think? Like the actual architect of the building? Yeah, yeah. I'm imagining weird studies as a yeah, like I would, a place I would, to go to study. I don't know. I think you know that I'm a huge fan of brutalism, so I would want to get. Uh, I think he's he's passed away by now, and I forget his name. Um, I love a good keyboard sound. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a no, no. I did. Yeah, Raymond Moriyama. <laughs> Raymond Moriyama would be the architect of the Center for Weird Studies. Okay. Uh, he is a amazing Canadian Japanese brutalist architect he did the ontario art center the ontario science center which is one of my favorite buildings uh, i'm a big fan of big slabs of concrete big monolithic mm. things mm -hmm. i'd love for the center of weird studies to be the most grotesque gigantic brutalist edifice ever erected um and um so that would be the architect but i don't know if you meant architect figuratively no, 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 literally. No. i meant literally yeah I don't know. I just started imagining an actual academy for the well, that's, for what you're trying to do. That seems to be like since we started this show, and I don't know what part we've played in this. The, the term "weird studies" has been gaining currency in academia, and now there are conferences, weird studies conferences and symposia. There are people who put weird studies as an area of a field of expertise on their CVs. Uh, I'm not an academic. I have nothing to do with that world. Uh, but to me, weird studies, the whole concept is a contradiction in terms. You mm -hmm. can't, what's weird can't be contained in a particular study program uh, or field. It's the weird, the weird is what eludes this sort of thing. So it's kind of funny to watch weird studies become an actual, an actual thing in the academic world. Um, and, um, but I know there are rumblings, there are, there are, there is rumor of something like that on the horizon. Um, it's possible that one day something like that comes into being and, uh, and that would be funny. What I really do believe in though, and what I hope that we can contribute to making happen is a revival of real parapsychology, like real research into the paranormal. I think that that's 
it, 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 it's been derided, of course, it's been laughed at, it's been mocked, it's been underfunded, but there are people who have developed methodologies and modalities in that world who deserve to have their legacy be recognized and picked up by new generations. And I think that there's a lot left to discover there. I, 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 so if, if weird studies, if the idea of weird studies can encourage people to start looking again at uh, parasite phenomena, parapsychological phenomena, I mean, now there's this crazy UFO disclosure stuff mm -hmm. coming, like this whistleblower, I'm sure you've heard of, the latest one. Um, no, I'm strangely completely uninterested in aliens. Oh. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I don't well, know. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, uh, there is a like the, the latest the latest um kind of um development in that in that world is quite spectacular um so looking at weird things and taking weird things seriously taking the weird as a kind of category of thought and experience seriously i think that i hope that we've contributed to that a little bit and i hope that continues uh but a, a weird studies center would to me be a kind of like uh, Monty, Monty Python-esque development, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean it can't happen, doesn't mean I wouldn't support it, but I think it would be funny. Okay. I think that's fair. I, I just like imagining it. Yeah. Do you feel that like you're weird? Uh, I've been told I was weird. I used to be, <laughs> when I was living in Toronto, my nickname was JFO um, because I was constantly talking about weird stuff. I don't know. I, I, I've just, I decided early on, I believe in everything. I just, you know, if you ask me, do I believe in, am I interested in Sasquatch? Yeah. So I'm super interested in, I'm, I'm interested in aliens. I'm interested in ghosts. I've had many experiences of that type. We didn't talk about that and that's fine, but I've had a lot of weird experiences. Uh, I've seen it, like we were saying earlier, I've never had like a vision from God, like telling mm -hmm. me what to do with my life, like build an ark or anything like that. But I've had a lot of completely inexplicable and completely unexplainable experiences. When I was 12, I had a, I was part of a major UFO sighting, like with 20 kids, this gigantic, obvious flying saucer <laughs> right in front of us. So that, you know, that was, that was a big experience for me. Um, and that was just one example. I've experienced poltergeist phenomena. I've experienced uh, sleep paralysis of the most kind of dramatic variety. I've experienced, um, of course, lots of psychedelic experiences, um, uh, synchronicities. Like it goes on. I, I'm I'm forgetting a lot right now. But so I don't know why I've been. I've always been drawn to that world and have always been rewarded for my interest by having weird shit happen to me. Um, so I guess in that sense, I'm weird, quote unquote, but I think that in my life, I'm pretty normal. Um, I don't, I, I, yes, there was a period of experimentation with psychedelics that ended a long time ago. I live a very sober life. I don't even smoke weed and I live in Canada where I can, there's literally a weed shop on every corner. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, I, so you're I in it. It sounds like you're now. in it. Yeah. 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 Well, it sounds like you're in it. I guess so. Maybe. No, just like there's some weird, uh, you know, you got palm readers prophesizing your podcasts, right? You're, you're in some, some current. Yeah, I guess it is. And when, when you're in it, it doesn't, 
feel that way. Yeah, because um, from my perspective, I don't, I, I don't see ghosts. I don't, I don't see UFOs. I don't. I, I, I'm not in it. I'm not in that current. You know. You know, I'm not in it anymore either. I don't see that stuff anymore. Really, actually, that's not true. I had, I think, I've told this story in your presence before. I had two crazy out of body experiences a couple in the during the pandemic which were like ridiculously intense and one of them my wife witnessed um she saw me out of my body <laughs> so it's weirdly corroborated yeah so i i'm not gonna tell the story again i i don't think but it just didn't so so i this like people most, not not knowing the context yeah this, I enjoy they don't that. Need it. <laughs> but i um that was the latest. That was a few years ago since that's calmed down. So I don't know. It's a, it's so strange to think about this. Um, I never, I, 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 I have never, I was never afraid of being seen as weird. I remember some of my friends, we were having discussions when teenagers and it seemed like being seen or singled out as weird was a problem for people. That was never a problem for me. In fact, I would have been ashamed if people didn't think I was a little weird when I was a kid and I'm not proud of that. It's like, it's another form of, uh, but so yeah, I I, I I guess so. I guess the question, I guess the answer is I was a weird person. The desire to be on the fringe, to be on the outside. The, 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 the the conviction that there's something out there that's astonishing. That people haven't figured out yet is the, my generous and charitable way of interpreting it. <laughs> a conviction yeah. that there's something that people don't realize is the case. And that when I find it, I will be astonished. And if they come along with me and if they see it too, they too will be astonished. There's something about this reality, this world, this existence of ours, which we haven't yet been able, we, we haven't yet metabolized and just like, shelved somewhere there's something let, yet left to, to discover and um i've never been much of a like a physical traveler like someone who wants to climb everest or like go mountaineering or deep yeah. sea diving and all that that doesn't hold what in, holds interest to me i guess this brings us back to the beginning is interior space you know like going into the realm of dreams and visions and madness and going as close to the abyss as you can without stepping over the edge or maybe even stepping over the edge and realizing that you still have just one toe, you know, on, uh, on the cliff side and just allowing yourself to, to go inward into those zones, those imaginal zones that are from one perspective, they're inside us, but in a way they're also, they're just as external as the, as outer space. They're just as alien and other. I like exploring those places and that means ideas, means exploring ideas, exploring means reading, but it means most of all reverie, dreaming, just finding what could be the case, you know? It occurred to me at some point that anything that you can think of is by virtue of its thinkability possible. And therefore the possible mm-hmm. is always real. So even the most fantastical imaginings have a kind of reality. There is a world in which those things exist as you imagine them. And since there's only this world, that means that there is some pocket, some corner, some zone of this world where these fantastical things are the case. And I like to dwell in that realm, that place, that zone where where these other realities 
present themselves as parts of our reality. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to end it. Uh, call to interiority. Yes. Hope you enjoyed tuning in. Music by Dory Bavarsky and Ming Jia Chen. Next up, we have Zach Fishman. Until then.